0: Hi, Sarah. Here we are, season three. I mean, I say that like it was just a week ago that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like I was like thinking today, season three. Holy cow. Yeah, we went through two books. Yep.
1: I love it. I love my time with you. I was thinking about this morning. This is what I live for.
0: I know. I know. Me too. It's It's really nice. Me. Peace and Mm -hmm. fulfillment.
1: Me too. And all of the guests that write us and just Uh everything. So I'm excited because we're doing something different this season.
0: Yes, we decided for our listeners, we decided to do a memoir season, Adoptee Memoirs. And we're going to go through adoptees that have been on our podcast and have written memoirs. That leads us to today's where we're starting. Very exciting. And she is such a compelling writer. She was just our guest a couple of episodes ago. We're doing A.M. Holmes the mistress's daughter. Yep. Um, Can't wait. And so we're going to do this obviously differently because it's not, you know, it's not going to be like a chapter breakdown. It's going to be more like we'll go through sections of the book and we're just going to talk about how we feel, how we relate. And we would love for people to read along with us if you want. We thought that'd be fun. Take a little break from the, the heavy,
1: you know, every chapter discussing it. This is, we're not going to give anything away. So we won't say, you know, this happened in the book. We want you to read it with us, but we'll just talk about our feelings. And then maybe people could write on our Facebook or YouTube. You know, well, we, email. We, pro-
0: we might discuss what happens just because yeah. fair warning, like mm-hmm. we'd love for you to read the book. We're putting a link to where you can buy the book. So therefore, if you do want to read along and listen to us kind of discuss what she goes through and how we relate to it, that would be great.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. And today we're reading up to what? Page 29. Yes. And she has this broken down into two books, book one and book two. So we're not doing all of book one today, but we just kind of picked a place that was a good stopping place.
0: Yeah. We got to the place where the first conversation with her birth mother. And by was, the way, it was
1: really hard not to keep going.
0: I know. <laughs> I was like, I just well, want we to always keep can't, You know, it is like, she's such a compelling writer that you just like, I always, would, I can't put her down when I'm reading her. So. Oh my gosh. Hope you're listening, AM. This is, we love your writing. <laughs>
1: All right. So the mistress's daughter, what'd you think right out of the bat? What are your first feelings?
0: Well, full disclosure, I read this, this essay of mistress's daughter in the New Yorker when it came out and like night, right, right around the time I met my own birth mother, I read this essay and yeah. I related to it so much because of all the stuff I was going through with her. I was still so deeply in the fog and had all that, those mixed loyalties to my parents, my adoptive parents that, you know, I just would see my birth mother as like, oh, I just looked for everything <laughs> wrong, you know? So, yeah. so I really related when I read it, I was like, that's no one's ever voiced how I feel. Exactly. Quite like She did, you know? Yes.
1: That's what, I, when I was reading this morning, I was thinking, these are words that I've never been able to really pinpoint what my thoughts have been, mm-hmm. you know, just the kind of, so exciting. Who's this person? Oh, and I didn't meet my birth mother, even just with my bio family. I had that like, Oh, how exciting. Oh God. No, they're not who I thought they'd be. That's not what I thought it was. And then
0: (laughs) she really, she also, you know, she's got, there's so much levity in her writing too, because when she gets to, when she's talking about the, what did she say? Hers is the most frightening voice I've ever heard, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 'Cause she was smoking, wasn't she smoking when she called her she heard the the flick, the sharp suck of air. Smoking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was right after
1: another favorite part of mine where she asked The lawyer, where does she live? He says, New Jersey, which, you know, New Jersey, shout out to New Jersey. But she says, In my dreams, my birth mother is a goddess, the queen of queens, the CEO, the CFO, and the COO, movie star, beautiful, incredibly competent. She can take care of anything and everyone. It made me laugh because it was right after New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I love that, the levity part, because there is levity in it. Yes. The thing I felt most from just the first. 29 pages of this, just it was holy cow, were these two people as soon as she gets this information in her 30s? I think she's 30 something. I might be yep, 31. 31. I was 32, and I- I, me too. And I wish we knew <laughs> each other then, actually. I know, because I think we'd go through it a little differently if we had. That's, I think so too. I didn't have anyone to share with that would have that helped in that way. And I just remember having the same feelings of like, my mom and my dad being so upset and crying and, and I love them to this day. I love them, but just feeling so like, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Like, what have I done? Why am I so sorry? Responsible, right? Responsible for their feelings. Yeah. But then at the same well, time, and, like, I mean, she says me the that in information, here. you know,
0: <laughs> what does she say in here? It's one of the, well, this is sort of a different segue, but you know, it's one of the pathological complications of adoptions. Adoptees don't really have rights. Their lives Mm -hmm. are about supporting the secrets and the needs and desires of others.
1: Yeah. I thought that was actually very poignant. Mm -hmm. That was about the lawyer reading the letters first. Yes. Right. So everybody's opening her mail and reading everything and saying, you know, this is what you should feel or this is what you should think here. I'm sending you this. And she's like, this is actually my life. Thank you very much.
0: I mean, that happened to my brother, Todd, when he and his birth father had to communicate through the adoption agency, they would open them up. And if they saw anything that might reveal any, they would block it off with like a marker. Oh my goodness. Yeah. They redacted it. They redacted it. Yeah. God.
1: I mean, the power that people have over the baby is really Mm -hmm. surprising to me. The neighbor. So I don't want to give too much of it away, but there's a neighbor who goes in to help get the baby from her biological mom to hand to her new mom out on the street, kind of because it was a it, private brokerage, like a drug deal, like you're yeah. buying, buying an illegal ticket to something or a drug. Yeah. And later in life, she finds out that's her next door neighbor her whole life. And she asks her about it, like, cause you met her. So she wanted details. I would too. Like you've met her. You're the person all these years I've lived next to you and you know, my biological mom. And the first thing she said to her was, well, you're not going to dig anything up about this, are you? You know, this kind of thing. I know.
0: Like lady, this this is uh, like
1: 30 years later. What do you
0: think is going to happen to you? (laughs) There was this, you know, the ethicist in the Mm -hmm. New York Times who is never, you know, he's always, it's weird. There's been a lot of questions about adoption lately. Today's question was, and he kind of answered it right, but then he also didn't. But today's question Was a guy, an adult saying, you know, I found out my older brother is adopted and my parents never told him, should I tell him their parents did not want him to tell like, so this kid, you know, he'll be a late Mm -hmm. discovery, adopt you, but his whole gone his whole life without knowing he was adopted. And now his brother's got this heavy thing on his shoulders and the parents are like, no, you can't tell him. And so he's asking the ethicist, you know, should I tell him that's Um, your brother? You got to tell him. And it's you his know, right it to is, know, <laughs> yeah. So, well, what, and, and she had that
1: too. When the parents, her parents, they do sound lovely. Her parents actually, and they said, "Well, we debated whether telling you that she's contacted the lawyer." And she's like, "There's no debate." You know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank God that answer won, but she and then still they never threw know. away all the letters of the correspondence.
1: Yeah, she talked about that on our episode. Yeah, because and and you know it's interesting the way she writes. I actually saw why because you're thinking of that new mom terrified, like, that's my baby. There's no proof that it's not my baby, but it's still, it's like you have the empathy, but then you're like, what? At the same time, that's how great she writes. You can have the two things feeling in your head at once. Yeah. I don't know. It was very sad. I'm excited to read more, actually. I know. I might, che- I might cheat, Sarah.
0: You can cheat. I'll probably <laughs> cheat too. <laughs> Well, I can't wait for our next guest.
1: Oh, our next guest is interesting. This is going to be fun for a season opener.
0: Yes, very fun. So welcome to season three. Happy to be here. See you soon. See you in a minute. Hey, we just want to give a shout out to all of our Patreons to say thank you. We are so grateful for your support and can't thank you enough. We're so close to being able to bring this podcast to you weekly. We just need a few more Patreons to get us there. So if you want to be one of those that pushes us over, we'd love it. You can go to patreon.com and search adoption, the making of me. So many people have reached out wanting to be guests and coming to you weekly. will give voice to adoptees that want to tell their story. Your support will help us get there. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you.
1: So here we are for another episode, which we're excited about. Our guest is someone we met through Twitter, and things were really blowing up on Adopty Twitter. He and Sarah actually have a little bit of a connection, and we said, hey, want to come on the podcast? So here we are from California. This is Bob Geyer. Hi, Bob. Hey,
0: Bob.
2: Hey, how are you both doing? Yeah, and I guess by way of introducing me and being an adopted guy, you know, I'm 69 years old. I have been actively working on the issue of separation from my biological mother for maybe 18 years, and that wasn't the first time I became aware of that being a need. So I kind of like to go back to the early days, because obviously all of us adopted people. It's the early days that matter, whether you got one day or three days or zero days or a week with your biological mother. For me, it's really that separation wound. I know people talk about a lot of the other difficulties and wounds, and those are all true. But for me, where I found my healing really was in the sort of deep inner exploration of that experience that lives in me, lived in me and lives in me all the time. So
1: I like that you've been doing this for so long and really... Because we know you a little bit really digging into this.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I I remember your first season when Nancy Verrier's book was kind of the guide through, right, you know, through the chapters. And I lucked out and ended up doing some therapy with Nancy. And I'll get to that part of the story, in a just a few minutes. But yeah, so when I was a kid, I was adopted. And my parents, obviously, I'm a, a white guy. So I've got that kind of privilege going for me and you know i'm not a generational adoption back in the 50s i didn't know it but being a white guy was supposed it was an advantage i did not know um <laughs> so my adoptive parents told me that i was adopted when i was probably six or seven i remember the conversation with my mom she was kind of shaky she was always very nervous and she she said you know you're adopted your parents were well educated and we love you very much. We love you so, so much. And I said, well, mom, I just love you too. Right. You know, and that's, you know, at six or seven. And as we go back into the experience of my little one inside me, he was hidden at that point yeah. from me and from everyone else. And, you know, later, of course, I unearth him. And that's where most of my healing begins.
1: Was there any more conversation? It was just that, right? Like just the
0: Wait, so she did tell you or didn't tell you? She did Did. tell you. Okay, I couldn't couldn't, couldn't decide. I didn't decide for that.
2: Yeah, she was cool. I mean, you know, my dad was a college professor, my adoptive dad. And, you know, I'll call those folks my my parents, my mom and my dad, because that's who parented me, right? My father and mother are my biological father and mother. They are the person you see in front Mm -hmm. of you. You know, I got all of this hair, the weird teeth, the, uh, <laughs> you know, all the, all the us that we got. Right? right. But so, you know, they were, we lived in a nice neighborhood. I didn't know it was a nice neighborhood, but I do now. And dad was the chair of the department of English, Cal State, Los Angeles. So he's a well-educated guy. And, you know, that was kind of it. I noticed a lot that other families weren't quite like us. When I go over to the Bell's house or the Carr's house, or they all kind of seemed the same and looked the same. And, you know, at our house with me and my adoptive sister, yeah, we were a white boy and a girl, you know, and, but, you know, the vibe wasn't like going to the yeah. car bells or the Spencers, right? Where, you know, you could see they all came out of the same mold. Didn't bother me much, you know, because I just kept on going, living my life. And then I think the first time that I had a big awakening to the effect of being an adopted kid was after I went to junior college and I fell in love and wonderful lady. And she got me into nursing school because she said, Bob, you're living with me. You got to get a job, you know, got to go to school. So I did. And she went away to school. I stayed there. Our timing went quite right. And it was the classic long distance romance that eventually broke up. And we were very close. We really loved each other and still good friends. But right as we were, we spent a day together saying goodbye. And I hugged her and closed my eyes. And I said, don't leave till the time's right. And I completely had the experience of being taken from my mom. I saw her there. I was crying my heart out. I was reaching out with my right hand. Someone pulled it down and wrapped it in a blanket. And I reached out and I said, don't leave me. And just emotionally and psychically, she said, I will never leave you. And boom, I came out of, out of the experience back into the room with my you know ex-girlfriend and I could see that that whole pattern characterized every relationship I had with every girlfriend. Okay, wow,
1: that's pretty amazing. Really?
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. really.
2: Well, thanks. I mean, <laughs> I didn't try to do it.
1: No, uh, I'm just saying it's like so profound because you're kind of going through your life as a guy, like going along, you know, not knowing what your things are. We all have them. And then yeah. that that's
0: big.
2: Yeah. yeah. To have
0: that, I mean, an actual memory, right? I guess. Yeah.
2: And much later when I got in touch with Nancy's book, after I started to do more inner exploration, I thought, well, great. People thought that you don't have a memory of that. You can't. I said, bullshit. You know?
0: Were you able at that moment? Did you realize that that's what had happened?
2: Oh, yeah. That was a definite memory of that fourth day in my life, probably. That's what the record said. Where, because, you know, it said, oh, your mom took care of you after you were born. She very much loved being with you. She was very sad when you parted, blah, 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 after four days. I didn't read that before I had this experience, right? That's much after once I went searching, once I went through all the crap of trying to get my records, which I did two times before, but never got them. That was my experience then. It's a
1: repressed memory.
2: Yeah, yeah as we all kind of know that trauma is pre-verbal right so there's no mm-hmm. words for it and there's also you know it's hard to differentiate feelings in this it was just the raw experience of that happening you, you said so, that this was
1: your relationship with girls always after that <laughs>
2: Expand yeah, a little well, on well before and after i mean it's still operative in a lot of ways you know and the, the message then was well you know you can get them to kind of like you but They'll say that they love you and they will stay with you, but then they won't. So I would do a lot of push away behaviors to make that true sometimes. Not really with this particular relationship. She needed to move on. But, you know, that's what was happening.
1: Yes, we can relate. I'm the queen of push away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Sarah's
2: actually, we're both the queens.
1: That's just right. and queen.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, then I I just, I started working. I moved up north. I was a psych tech at a psych hospital I, you know, fell in with a lot of spiritual communities because when I was a youngster before I had this experience, I had a, what I didn't call a spiritual experience then, but I was thinking about Einstein and trying to do a thought experiment going past the edge of the universe because he said it would curve, right? And I said, okay, well, let's find out. Let's do a thought experiment. He does a lot of thought experiments. And my dad was a college professor, so there's shit around and have to read and, yeah you know. <laughs> And so I started thinking, well, what's going to make me curve if I don't want to curve? And I said, oh, shit, there's a barrier there. oh. Here's a brick wall. Let me make that. And I said, well, nothing's keeping me from just jamming through that thing. I did. And then at some point, I realized, oh, the bricks are infinite. And boom, I had this experience of being, I guess you would call it transcendentally aware, being identical to a space and a consciousness that is the source of all things and is the actuality of all things, right? Mm -hmm. And then I come back into my body through some funnels of light. And I, I don't want to try to do this. It was like a doctor,
0: like a Joe Dispenza meditation. uh, I was gonna say that reminds me of Wayne
2: Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And when I got back into my body, and this is maybe as twelve or thirteen, you know, I said, Oh my gosh, that presence is here and it is me, and it is everyone else. And the only thing I could really call it was love, because that's that fully connected feeling. Now, I didn't have that with my adoptive mother, right? I lost it with my biological mother, which is that kind of union love where your everything is part of you. You're part of everything. So that I think you know happened before my experiencing my separation from mom. But I think that gave me kind of a lifelong interest in the deeper parts of being a person. And later, of course, I found out these experiences are described in various kind of religious and spiritual mm-hmm. lit. You know, it wasn't an unknown thing.
1: But so, so you're feeling like when you were young, you were feeling this love, like real. The envelopment, I guess, yeah. of love around you yeah. that you don't really have in your home life, even though they love you. Yeah. But you yeah. know, it existed. It's almost like a quest then.
2: Yeah. And I could feel it and see it and be in it with my friends and with my family for a couple of weeks. Right. And, you know, you, when you're really connected, you feel everything around you and you can feel people's pain. You can, you know, empathize with people. You can connect. You can. what the right thing is to do then which is you're connecting and everybody's healing right so that's kind of why i got interested in psychology studied that ended up being a nurse that did you know acute psych and and subacute psych for a living and then i was up north just living my life doing spiritual groups and i really liked that community aspect of it but then when there came a conflict and i felt rejected i just split i felt so devastated right so did that a couple times Had a short-term marriage. Didn't work out. It fit the pattern in all my relationships. It fit the pattern I had with my adopted mother, which was a very deep unconscious pattern. I I discover this later as I do my deep work with my inner little self, is that in order to feel secure and safe, I always unconsciously found a woman that had an unhealable wound. Mm. And I had an unhealable wound, right? One I didn't even know about. And if we could get together, we could stay together. That would work, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like my adoptive mom. She, much later in life, I found out she had three late-term miscarriages. And what a wound. I have three kids. And, you know, I'm one step away. I'm not a mom. But I've been with her the whole time. And I'm with my kids. And I love my kids. What a devastating wound, right? Well, me as a little adopted, you know, four uh, three-month-old, I guess, when they got me no way I can heal that, but I am the solution to that.
0: Were uh, you the first?
2: Yeah, that was okay. the first. Yeah, yeah. So that then is, has been a sort of pattern of that. So I got married, you know, a, a more stable situation. We've had kids, started work, getting my career together. And then after our second kid, who's 25 now, I started to, you know, I would always do inner work, but I started to do more meditation. And I realized that, The old meditation practices and stuff just were stupid for me. And I decided to just trust myself and just meditate and say, my meditation is to trust myself. And I started to get this feeling and it was just a little shape, but definitely a feeling and it's something that I'd always felt and always pushed away and always intensely before my birthday, right? And many adoptees talk about the pre-birthday thing. I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, I thought, well, it's like three months before my birthday. I'll listen to this thing at this time. And so I started meditating and listening to it, and it was a feeling shape, and I started to ask it questions, and it couldn't say anything. Then it started to say a word or two, and then I started to do a Jungian technique called active imagination, which is basically you just imagine it, right? You set some boundaries and you imagine it. So I started writing down a dialogue with this inner voice, and this was the little inner part of me that wanted his mom. And he was really sad, really hurt, really not knowing where she was or how to find her. And then he was really angry at me for, like he said, being incompetent mm-hmm. in caring for him. So if you're totally incompetent, you didn't do anything about this. You didn't find my mom. Nobody else would find my mom, you know? So this inner part of me, this forbidden part, right? Because it's just forbidden. You, you, there's no survival advantage in your adoptive family of, you know, letting this guy out of the cage right keep him in the cage you know, kind of a crude metaphor but you know you, you shove him into the unconscious it just kids are so adaptable right we have it makes, to,
1: me, it makes me sad to think about all the children just sadness we have that we carry mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah and you know my thing was to fully allow him into my life and he had such intense feelings just he was sad. He was angry. He was confused. And then eventually, maybe shortly before my birthday, so maybe three or four months, in these written dialogues, I would just talk back and forth and say, Bobby, blah, blah, blah. He would say something. I'd write it down. I'd say something. And that whole process really developed all sorts of emotion and all sorts of movement and direction. And then we finally got to this place, happened over two or three days, where this super intense feeling that turned into... That could only be expressed in the poem was "I will wait no more." Was the name of the poem, and these poems are just all spontaneous. This isn't, yeah, you know, this is just me working through the process, and it was just about waiting for him, waiting for his mommy all that time, and she was never going to come. And then the thing that was really remarkable, and to this day I felt totally new, a totally different person, is when I wrote this "My Right to Be" poem, and it was basically you know, you rejected me, but I'm not rejecting me. I am. So, I have the right to be. I have the right to be everything that I am. I have the right to be my pain. I have the right to be my wisdom. I have the right to be my happiness. I have the right to be, right, to be alive, right? And for me, ever since then, a tremendous anxiety that I didn't really know I had was just gone, and it's still gone, and. I didn't know that all my life I'd been afraid that if I'd been found out, right, that yeah. I'd be abandoned, right? That, they see uh, your
1: true colors. There you
2: go. Right. Dude, there's something wrong with you. I mean, yep. you're all fucked up. Well, you know, that's the reason that they got rid of you. I mean, you know, your mom didn't even love it. You know, you hear a lot of these tropes, right?
0: Yeah. Um, yes.
2: But they're real feelings, right? And, you know, the advantage for me of doing this meditatively and in writing. Was that as I brought this part of my life out, it carried all its emotions and tremendous healing for me. And I think a lot of people don't do this kind of thing, but I think most people don't do this. No. Yeah. But, you know, I think the real advantage for me is that it could be completely true and I didn't have to tell it to another person. I didn't have to hear their pushback on me. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, that process just went on for like maybe ten or twelve years after that. And boy, even in, in the middle years of that, you know, these dialogues I would have with my biological mom, my adoptive mom, my adoptive dad, we said some shit. Oh, sorry, don't mean to swear. We you, said you,
0: it's okay. You, you can you, you can, can, say can. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, we said things we're not trying time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we said things and went through things that you just wouldn't do if you had a real person yeah. in front of you and you wouldn't get those same responses. And for me, what that has been is a deep emotional working through for me. And it's affected my outside life in a good way. Right. But
1: how old were you when you had the poem that made you say, "I
2: oh, healed? Oh, that was my right to be moment. And that was about, about 18 years ago.
0: Okay. Oh, wow.
2: I'm 69 now. So that's a while it back. It seems
0: like 50s is very common for adoptees to yeah. go through some stuff.
2: Well, and when 30s you think about and 50s it,
0: maybe. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Well, when you think about it, you're coming into your own, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you have issues. You have feelings. You have all sorts of stuff going on that nobody around you, and you don't even really know, I didn't feel different, different. I saw other people having all sorts of trouble too. Right. I have trouble, you know, and I partially succeeded. Yeah. You know, I mean, kind of, I wasn't that different than my peer group. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. You know, I had yeah. some sort of troubles. <laughs> I, have I understand.
1: This. Cause I still have a hard time like saying that with friends or they're like, but you're this, but you feel inside, like if you only mm-hmm. knew how I don't feel that way, like yes. I don't want someone to really know me. Yeah. And when they do, it's terrifying. I I'm scared my husband's gonna leave me every day because he really knows me now. And I'm like, don't leave.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. And for me, that's the big anxiety drop that I had then. And since then, so after that, then I started reading and I found Nancy Verrier's book. I found out that she lived near me and I just sent her a poem. It wasn't that poem, but I said, Hey, you know, what's up, man? You want to do some therapy? <laughs> and it was neat reading her book because I'd already discovered the wound. Right. And you know, so I don't like to be talked into things. I like to know that it's my real experience. So Mm -hmm. this is my real experience. So I brought that to her and we did some work. And then she helped me. She found a searcher for me. And this was quite a while ago, back before all the DNA stuff. A lot of people find them DNA relatives.
1: Yeah, ancestry and all
2: that. Yeah, but back then it wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Or if it was, I didn't know about it. And found me a searcher. She found my mom, which is a wonderfully long and agonizing experience. And I had two unusual experiences. One, as I kept feeling so good, you know, better than I'd ever felt. And then one day I felt just awful. And I wrote it down in my, in my diary. You know, you know, it's all dated. And, I, and then, you know, maybe three or four weeks later, we found my mom and we found out that she had passed and it was that exact day.
1: Oh, mm. She had passed so soon into finding her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, too, that was one of the reasons that this inner feeling and voice was so intense that I just gave up and said, okay, dude, you know, I felt you before. And I just because, you know, before my birthday, I feel shitty and I just push it aside, you know, just do the adult thing just we're going to have some fun. So I think that was one of the reasons she died of Alzheimer's. And I think that was one of the reasons the feeling was so intense is that we're deeply connected and on some level. And anyway, cognitively, also, I, knew, I mean, we would talk in our little dialogs and we say, well, Bobby, you know, I'd like to find her, too. But, you know, she might be dead. You know, how do you feel about that? And we, so we worked on a lot of our feelings before that event. And if she had, very,
1: had, if she had had Alzheimer's, too, she may not have even been able to know you.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's what my half-sister on my mom's side is, you know, the searcher was able to identify them. And I wrote them the best letter I could. Hey, you know, and this is a crew. I, I was wonderful and lovely and eloquent, and Nancy helped me. And, you know, <laughs> you know, hey, dude, sorry your mom died, you know, but you know, I think I'm a kid. I know this might piss you off. You might think I'm, you know, some kind of hack or something, but dude, I'd kind of like to know. So, could we, here's the information. Because it was all information. So, it's born here, did the, you know, it's detective work. And so I, I sent that to him with the description about myself. that Nancy really helped me with that helping me really trust to be as authentic as I could about me. Because if it really was my mom, my siblings might notice some similarities if I really put myself out there. And she also cautioned me. She said, these things can be good, they can be bad, they can drag on forever. They, If they're shitty at the first, they can change. If they're really good at the first, they can change. Yeah. <laughs> so I was ready and I got responses back from my half-brother and sister. And my half-brother was like, Dude, no, this is a scam. There's too many things that you could have looked up on the internet about me. Like, he was an endurance athlete who's a cyclist, and uh, I was training for a marathon, so I put that in there. And so they were suspicious. And my sister was more emotionally attuned, and she said, Well, you know, I don't want this to break your heart, but I'll explore it because it could, maybe it isn't, but it would explain some things about mom. Uh,
1: and she had deeper feelings about loss that she probably watched with your mother.
2: Yeah.
0: What was the age difference?
2: My older brother is like nine years younger than me. My sister is, I think, 11 years younger than okay.
1: me.
0: Okay.
2: And so Diana was just very sweet in the beginning and, you know, sensitive and open. Russ was kind of just hardcore. Mm-hmm. But then Russ sent me, said, okay, well, shit, it couldn't hurt to send you a picture. Send me a picture, a Mom. And I took it, I printed it out. I didn't want to look at it much and I drove to a quiet place where I could just look at it and I looked at it and I saw her arm and I said, Oh my, That's God. my arm. That's my arm. And then every other feature and my smile and her eyes, and all of that. I cried, I cried, but you saw course. her arm. Wow. Well, first, that was the first thing because she was holding it holding it in a way that I hold my arm. right? And it looked exactly like well, that's just—I recognize it. That's, that's me standing there, right?
0: Yeah. Um, oh, I thought you meant the arm from your memory.
2: Oh no, 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 no! Just oh. her. She was probably oh gosh, she's a lovely woman, probably in her early fifties, maybe something like that. In the but picture? Just, yeah, just a, a wonderful-looking lady, and yeah, you know, my mom. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I sent Russ back a picture of me, and he said, "Oh crap, you're my brother." I give up. It's true, right? <laughs> He did. He kind of came around that fast. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, I hear a lot of adoptee stories about parents and siblings and getting together. And I lucked out, I think, in that i had done a lot of emotional preparation. I wasn't expecting anything of them. I knew that they're independent folks and that this is shocking news to them. And they may have lots of feelings and motives that don't include wanting to have me in their life or wanting to acknowledge me at all. And that it was my commitment to my own inner little boy that I would just go do that. You know, I wouldn't be incompetent. Because he kept calling me incompetent, little fucker. And, you know, he knew what words to use when I gave him words to get my attention. So, it. I'm not Well,
1: and we have so many people that, well, Sarah and I are always talking to people, but we just feel like if you're going into reunion to do this pre-work, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which most people don't get that chance or opportunity or know to do that. Sarah and I didn't know
2: any of this. Yeah. You know.
1: And so you're kind of going in blinded and then you're so vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and you had yeah. a little bit of like, okay, I'm okay. They may not, you know, that's a huge thing to have.
2: Yeah. And I found out that dispositionally they were a lot like me. You know, my brother and my sister were smart. My biological dad and mother, I find out, were pretty smart. Like, my adoptive parents would say, well, they're well-educated.
0: So what, your biological father, so you did find out about him?
2: A couple of years later. Yeah. Okay. But he's a complete unknown to my mom's family. And that's wow. where my sister said, you know, she would never talk about before dad, right? Her dad, never. I tried, I tried. She would never, there was just, no, no. It was like she no. had
1: a, a youth and then a block of life that she didn't talk about and then their dad.
2: Yeah, yeah, and she was an unusual one. She she had a bachelor's degree from Oregon State in business, and that's back in the forties. I was yeah. born in fifty three, so she had to earn that in the late forties. You know, came from working class people. Was I think the dad that had left, so she had her mom. But you know, remarkably strong chick. Never knew her, but I think I've inherited some of her stuff, right? And you know, I'm, I'm yeah. I'm pretty so so
0: how here. how did you know who your father was? Aha.
2: Well. It took me a few years, and I think this is sort of common to start wanting to look for the dad. But in this first year, so I found my brother, found my half-sister, we got together, I really vibed good with my brother. We're really good friends now, live close to each other, do things with each other. So that first year, though, I, I started then working through the other parts of it. So after finding, right, and finishing that thing, then I went through... Grief and anger, and you know, I worked these out in dialogue internally. And why would you give me up? You, I, I'd swear, I'd, you know, I'd get responses back. There'd be some reconciliation, you know, and I worked through a lot of that with my mom and my adoptive mom in dialogue. And then we got pregnant with our third child, probably four months or three months after finding my mom. Yeah, it wasn't. We weren't really intending to do that, but you know that's our third little girl. She's wonderful. We have a boy, two girls, one boy. So that was cool. But then what it started to kick off was, you know, my new self didn't match many of the circumstances and choices that I've made, right? More conflict in my marriage because of this. I used to think that it was my fault that my wife's wound wouldn't be healed. (laughs) And she would regularly blame me for that because that's the kind of relationship that felt right, right, based on my adoptive relation or my adoptive mom. So as my inner sense of me was changing, I became much more aware of the discomfort of those conflicts and kept working on it internally, would do some external work on it. And that was really a lot of the next, oh gosh, hold on, I got my little cheat sheet here. That was really most of year two, right? So tons of dialogues with both moms in the dialogue my adoptive dad and the dialogue.
0: Are they now, are they still alive at this point? Are you? Oh, no,
2: my adoptive parents have died. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think that might be typical too. your adoptive parents die, and then you're a little more free to go look. I told my adoptive mom before that I, I started to look. It was one of the unsuccessful ones, you know, several years before all this started. So that was a lot of it. And then the third year is where I started to focus more on my dad. and And Sarah, this gets back more to your question about, you know, what the heck's up with dad? And it started with working through my adoptive father's expectations of me. He was really smart, the mind and all that was a cool thing for him. And I'd gotten in trouble in elementary school, and teachers said I was retarded. And so dad had me tested, and the death thing came back. Well, you'd gifted. So then. Turn it
1: to gifted all you, in one day.
2: Well, <laughs> it is. And when your dad, when your adoptive dad values that so much, I had to work through in dialogue with him. A lot of the expectations that scare me and that I can't live up to or expectations that I don't want to live up to or anyway, you know, just to please my dad. And everybody goes through this. You To please your parents, you try to be what they need, right? And I did and I had some capability for it, but I never embraced it, right? And I think that's still, you know, I'm always an outsider. I was an outsider in my family, right? In my adoptive family. So I could never fully embrace a lot of things and become fully legit, right? That's that's the word that used to come up, you know, well, you know you're know, you illegitimate and right, you know, so I could get into a lot of things where I was capable and could sort of perform, but I always had to have this air of not quite being qualified, right? Mm-hmm. People would want me because I was fun and I was smart and I was kind. So, you know, I played that most of my life. But, you know, as I started to work through these expectations, then I said, well, what about finding my biological dad? So reached out, found the searcher, a different one, because the one I used first was ill. And she found the possibility of my dad. So sent letters and got in touch. And but, then...
0: There, yeah. What information did she have to go on? Was his name on on your original birth certificate or...
2: Because yeah, your mother, she,
0: like, right? So your your mother didn't tell anybody.
2: Didn't tell anybody. So yeah, what? She, she did an amazing job of working the document, the public documents that are out there. Wow. The birth certificates, the marriage certificates, the timing, mm-hmm. and all of that, and the location and area. And also, I think she may have had, oh, I think she did have a potential last name on my birth certificate they could find, apparently, Baby Boy Ogden. Mm-hmm. and one of the traditions back in the 50s you got an orphan kid you get or you know adopt a kid in the hospital name give him the last name of his dad and so then they found people for me to contact I contacted them and they were once again pretty open I'm pretty open they were pretty open so I think I'm finding disposition similarities but I go up to my brother and potential brother Larry's place And there's DNA work that you can do. And this is from the paternity soup stuff, right? Where if you match, you know, you can match the father's DNA through a son to a son. And then you have to have custody, you know, accurate custody of all this stuff with these companies, right? So that nobody's faking anything. So I went up and, you know, hung out with Larry on his porch there. We concocted this story because his mom was still alive, but his dad had died. And concocted the story. Oh, it's the old friend. He, he was just coming to hang out a little bit. And so surreptitiously, we go, hey, Larry, okay, here's the thing. Now, just, you know, you spit in at him, just read the instructions, and then you're, you, know. So, so
1: Larry's dad had died. That's your dad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go
2: on. You, I you. Sure I got the story. Yeah, and my adopter dad had been dead for a long time. But when I came away from that, Larry was pretty quiet, pretty introspective, kind of spiritual in a way. And I just thought, well, this is my brother. This is the other side of me. You know, my brother Russ is more pragmatic and business like, still very kind guy. But Larry was more the artist, right? I used to be a singer. I love music. You know, I chose to be pragmatic. Didn't pursue any of that stuff in college. Did as a kid, sang in a band, you know, was rivals with the Van Halen band in Pasadena, the band I was in. So, you know, <laughs> I liked music. But anyway, so he was much more. Much more counterculture, much more artistic. And I I have a big side of that in me.
0: And how much younger was he than you?
2: Almost the same amount, probably nine years, eight years. Yeah. And when I left there, I knew he was my brother. And I I thought, "Ah, I'm unique. This is who I am. And a poem wrote itself in my head all the way home. And it was a long drive. And I wrote it down when I got home. and It's one of the ones I like best. It's called Life. And it's just about DNA flowing through the river of time and meeting and intertwining and passing on parts. And I felt at that point, I mean, the story was complete for me. And wow. that felt really good. And then it, their mom was alive and they didn't want to tell the mom. And so I kind of struck up a relationship with my, my sister Sue. And she is told me Sue, something about it. who
1: Who's Sue? She's the sister of
2: Larry. Uh, there's In that side of the family, there's two brothers and one sister. Mm-hmm. Sister yeah. Sue is the sister. And she's very generous. And I learned a lot of things about him that he was a NASA rocket scientist, worked wow. in, what's that, Vandenberg maybe. And then kind of shifted and went into environmental science and love nature. And I'd just gotten out of trying to, once again, illegitimately get into a PhD program at Oregon. It was about environmental studies and a second option. I chose philosophy and I didn't get in. I hadn't done any preparation. It was competitive. What the hell was I think? I
1: like but, that, that you have the side that falls not far from the tree with him,
2: though. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's and, really what And
1: it you have the artsy like. side, the spiritual side. You're kind of an interesting mix of science and spiritual.
2: <laughs> yeah. It was neat to see where that comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a dispositional roots out there and talent roots out there that you know, you resonate with. And kind of long story short, several years later, once their mom had died, they invited our family up to their big Thanksgiving party. Oh, and it was just wonderful. People were just shocked. You know, you can look at my hair and stuff. And, you know, I was baldy and I was older. And, you know, everybody was just, and especially the younger, the children of my half brothers and sisters were all like, that's grandpa.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah.
2: what's And I see pictures and he looks a lot like me, right? (laughs) So that was really affirming and nice. And so I've had on the reunion side of the world, very accepting people. I think part of it is disposition. They're a lot like me. I'm pretty open and accepting. I think dispositionally, I am not just as an adoptee having to accommodate, which is another whole story that's painful. But yeah, they're a lot like me. And also, you know my expectations. I wanted to meet them and be with them, but I wasn't expecting them to fix anything in me. Sense
1: big, they probably sense yeah. that. I think people sense yeah.
2: that. Yeah, or get anything from them, or even demand tons of information about my dad. Even with you know my longest sibs on my mom's side, I don't probe them all the time about mom. Well, yeah. Tell me more about mom. What about mom? I want to know about them, right?
1: I think you learn things as you get have
2: relationships. That's when you
1: learn them. You know? Yeah. You don't get oh, to yeah. just demand that. So uh, really quick, does anybody know? How were they together?
0: I feel like we don't know their Yeah, not to know the story, you know.
2: That's the big mystery. And everybody is so curious about that and nobody knows. So my theory is based on where people were when, yeah. is that my dad was in Korea and he was because he's a math guy, I guess, or had that aptitude, he was doing the artillery targeting, you know. Mm-hmm. In this wind, with this charge, you know, or what target are you going to hit over there? And then he got out of the service. I think that he came back to San Francisco, and my mom was working for Standard Oil in San Francisco after getting her business degree, right? And uh, that's pretty so progressive. She, She's pretty progressive. Oh yeah, that girl. Whew. That's cool. Yeah. Awesome. And you know, so she then, according to the adoptional lip that we got, which is kind of partial it's there you know, decided to not tell the father and because he thought he was pleasant looking, but he didn't want to marry him. Um, pleasant
0: looking. That's what it said on the.
2: That's what it said in the report. <laughs> and oh, so she would looking.
0: have been. Sarah, I find you pleasant. Looking. <laughs> pleasant. Like one of the, it's a terrible insult. <laughs> I'd rather be like horrible than pleasant. <laughs> um, pleasant. So they weren't super young. She was right. in her 20s.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This wasn't the teen thing. This, you know, she was out doing a job. He was a dude coming back from the army, right? I mean, yeah. You know, she Korean did, she War. didn't want
1: to have a, a baby. And back then that ended all she yeah. was
2: doing. Yeah. Well, and my hunch is she saw advancement for herself as a possibility and came from a, a kind of a poor working class background. She got a bachelor. She was working at Standard Oil. You know, I think that and back in the day, there weren't that many opportunities for women. You guys know. And so I think that she wanted to marry, Wright. Oh, and oh, gosh, that was the last name of the guy to marry. Okay. But W R R E P H P. But at any rate, so I, I think that she just made that decision and said, no, 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 this isn't going to work for me. This isn't the plan that I made. And in researching it further, I think she went over to Booth Memorial, unwed mother's home in Oak. And I've been reading about that. And the unwed mother's homes, this one was, I think, by Goodwill or Salvation Army, maybe, I think. They had a hospital upstairs, and the girls would stay there, do crafts, occupy themselves, and then they'd go upstairs to have their babies. So I think I was had upstairs there and then taken away after four days.
1: Gosh. Wow. Yeah. When we tell the story, it's just the story, right? But then when you think about what goes on, now that we've all yeah. had children, you're a father, we're mothers. Um, so,
2: that's a yeah. thing. Wow. So, yeah. What a
0: <laughs> crazy, great, what a story, Bob. That's really... yeah. yeah.
2: So I think that that's the origins there. And that's why, you know, when I wrote that DNA flows in the river of time thing, it was just it's a great poem. It's super long. I read it to you, but it would take forever. That's what happens. I would think if
1: you would share your poem for us now, but to put on our site.
0: Yeah, you can put it on. Yeah, that'd be great. So now you feel, we were just discussing, can adoptees ever truly healed, but you feel I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Maybe whole. You feel whole. Maybe not healed,
2: but whole. I feel whole, but I think that the big complication for me once I felt whole was becoming aware of how my life was constructed. All my choices, all the jobs that I did, Mm -hmm. all the family that I created was created by a partial self Mm -hmm. who didn't feel real. Well, he felt real, but he didn't feel Real and secure the way I feel now, and so the next ten years was trying to work all that through, right? And it's hard because there's stuff you can't change, right? I mean, it's super deep,
1: I actually. I mean, we we know it, but just how you said it again, the partial self, yeah, constructing yeah. your life mm-hmm. on a partial self,
2: yeah, and and we all do it, and we have to, right? We have no. Don't have a tool,
0: or we didn't yeah. have the tools yeah. to or the knowledge, you know, as we said, pre verbal trauma. And yeah.
2: and you're going to do the best you can, yeah, right. And sometimes that looks really super messy, sometimes it looks overachieving, sometimes it, you know, depends on your, I, I suppose, the strategies you pick somehow, not real consciously, but you know, I, I for me, I think I just navigated along my existing abilities, right, and used them to form a self that could make it in that family make it with my friends hope to never get exposed unconsciously i wasn't yeah. and then you know in my youth you know use a lot of drugs and alcohol to cover that yeah fear i did when i was younger i really did like to get to a less fearful place through drinking in particular which kind of helped Temporarily ease that. Spirit. Then it just
0: adds a whole other host of other problems. <laughs> <Yeah. you know?
2: laughs> it sure does.
0: Yeah. So, worse. Like the problems yeah. become worse. But yeah. If you put that, all those adoptees together, we would have definitely partied together.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: In
1: various
2: forms And then, you're, yeah.
1: You're very, you know, healing for others to
2: hear this. Actually.
0: Yeah. This has been really... Great and enlightening. I feel like we need a part two with you.
2: (laughs) That'd be great. And then, you know, and then this is just kept on, right? And not going to go into all the details of all the inner work on basically trying to help my outer life match my inner life better. And, you know, what could I do? What could I not do? But then COVID threw me for a loop and I really got sort of bummed out. And what do I call it? I used to do a lot more taking care of my physical self. Kind of more regular exercise, more trying to keep my weight normal and not normal, but like at least reasonable for me. And COVID threw me for a loop and my daughter for a loop. My daughter has a bad case of OCD, is health fears. And so the COVID fears kicked that off. But I just got sort of apathetic about my own physical well being. And you know, this, this, oh, what the heck? What the hell? I, you know, come on. What are you going to do? You're going to die. And I resumed my dialogues with little Bobby about two months ago or three months ago around that issue and I said well, what do you have to say about this yeah and he said I lost my body so what what do you mean I lost my body I go oh right when we were separated from mom for you that was your body part of your body got taken away and so you know instead of now looking for the relationship you know to the mom we started talking about and I started been working on and trying to be more responsible about my relationship to my physical self. Yeah. And to your and, own
1: self. It's really into you. I mean, like you have to be kind to yourself now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so I've been mostly, you know, really emotionally centered and you know, mentally centered, working all this through and a relationship center. But you know, now I'm kind of getting to that level of, well, dude, it also comes down to just you.
0: You know, there's always more to find out and <laughs> dig into and it just it just keeps going
1: and you're 69 and you're still digging I yeah that. which is great oh, yeah, you know that's yeah. a,
0: a small percentage of people i think on the planet that do that
2: bob yeah. thank you
0: so much for your generosity and sharing your story and for sure and for coming on and being patient with us with <laughs> scheduling interviews or? and
2: <laughs> no, this is just wonderful this has been my my best part of the day so far
0: good
1: oh, i'm glad ours too. ours too i love this actually it's been yeah really interesting. Well, we
0: could just keep talking all night but <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right
0: yeah well, thanks, well, thanks bob thank you so much bob
2: <laughs> and i'll send you that yes that do yeah, yeah
0: we'd yeah. love that we'd love to put that somewhere <laughs> for sure <laughs> all right you. okay thanks Bye. bob Okay, thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was such a great conversation. I'm really glad we got to talk to Bob because it took a while, right? We yeah. reached out to him, or he reached out to uh, me. I reached out to him, obviously. We
1: talked about that. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Bob is he comes into this very late in the game, like learning about himself. Mm-hmm. And I know he's almost, you know, we're late in the game too. He's a little bit older than us, but I don't know. He has a lot of insight for young people. And just anybody, because he really goes there and does the work with himself, which I think is very impressive because a lot of people don't, even very young, remember he was going to those places and learning about things early and asking questions. I didn't do any of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I did at 20, but I didn't connect what it was. No. He just had like in his inner child work and it's really great. I really admire him. I do too. And I'm so glad to have him as our season opener. Me too. Bob, season opener. We have a great season
1: ahead. This is exciting. We do. All right. Well, what do we say?
0: (laughs) Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today.
1: And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at The Making of Me Podcast.
0: And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.